it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We have a new friend that we just met on Twitter, the Twitter machine, or X, uh, depending on which name you want to go with right now. We have Paul from at Investment IDEEN, and he is coming from us all the way from Germany uh, to talk to us about investing. And if you have not followed his account on Twitter, you need to. It's uh, fantastic. He drops a lot of great information, and he's a very, very smart guy. So we're very, very happy to have him with us here today. So, Paul, thank you for joining us, first of all, obviously, and spending your early evening with us. And also, I guess, can you give us a bit of a background on maybe how you got started, what got you interested in the investing, and share with us your first ever investment? Yeah, sure. Dave, Andrew, first of all, thank you for inviting me over to to your podcast. I'm very happy to be part of the show today. So telling you a little bit about my background, I think it's less exciting to be fair. So I got into into, into investing at the age of 18. It's around about 12 years ago now. At this time, I was just in high school, absolutely no idea what I should do after high school. And I was looking for potential jobs in the future. And one of them was a uh, fund manager. And I thought it sounded very exciting, very challenging, and you can make a lot of, a lot of money with it. And so that was the first time how I, I was introduced to equities. Considering my background from um, of my parents, which have been born in the Soviet Union, I never heard of something of, of stocks or equ- owning equities in, in public listed companies. So yeah, it was kind of late that I discovered all this. But my very first experiences have been playing around with CFDs, speculating on, on commodities, all, all this stuff that actually doesn't work, at least didn't work for me. The most important interesting part happened around about two years later when I met a guy who is a close friend of mine as of today who taught me most of what I know about investing I would say probably more than 70 percent and he taught me everything from valuation to research doing the due diligence assessing the management uh, sharing good good writings books etc etc so I got very lucky that I had someone who was an expert who taught me a lot. Otherwise, it's always hard to break the ceiling at some point because you just don't know what to do next. Yeah, then getting back to the investment, my background, I was uh, I did some internships at hedge funds here in Germany. Then I have been working for three years at Constellation, was part of the M&A team. And yeah, I quit Constellation last year to do my own gig. And on the side, I'm still investing in, in small and micro caps. Yeah, that's more or less about my background, I, I, I guess, if there's nothing else you would like to expand me on. Well, I guess, what was the first investment you ever bought? Like, What was the first company you ever stepped off the ledge and bought? 
Oh, that's, uh, yeah, it was Hamburner, right? So it's a real estate company here in Germany. Uh, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I just thought, <laughs> like, if you're a beginner, you think, okay, uh, real estate is interesting. So you just buy it because real estate is interesting. And, and uh, it was my very first investment. Yeah, I, I sold the company last year. I mean, uh, I don't know, a very small profit after after 12 years. That it's uh, just for like a, but I have another company I'm holding for, for the same period, which I consider more of a first investment, which is Ituran from Israel. The reason is uh, it was the first company I really did some due diligence on, uh, read the whole, did the whole annual report on, on the company. So did my modeling. So it was, that's the company I would more consider as a first investment because I have more uh, attachment to it. That's cool. That's cool. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. What was it about this company that you did due diligence on that made you more confident in that kind of a pick? Were there other companies that you said no to and then this one was like, okay, this one felt like the one I'm going to do next? Yeah, I think to mention that this friend was teaching me most what I know today about investing and the way how he taught me everything was he was proposing a list of companies. So it's like, well, let's start with each of the, let's go through all of those companies. Let's read through all of the annual reports of each of the companies. Here's some of his investment thesis is already laid out. I was just doing, trying to replicate his ideas, his thoughts, his risks. So we went through the financials together. He told me to do the, the modeling for those businesses. So that was more or less the reason why I was researching this company. It wasn't my own idea. It just was proposed by a friend who told me, look, you should spend some time because I think it's an interesting company and you will learn a ton from just doing the work on this business. After doing the work, I just said, well, it seems interesting. It was my very first company I was researching. I said, well, let's just buy one one stock of it. So no, I think it's, how much do I own? Maybe six or seven shares. But I mean, it's for like 100 a hundred bucks or something. So not, not that much, but I think it, it's just like a memory. That's cool. How is it following in the footsteps of somebody else? As investors, I feel like we're all standing on the shoulders of giants mm-hmm. and taking lots of different principles. I mean, like guys like Buffett, he's been doing DCFs for as long as... Longer than we've all been alive. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So using your friend... How much did you stick to that or how much have you diverged from that and have you found more success doing one or the other? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think I do I have a completely different style compared to what he taught me at the beginning or over the years that he, he was teaching me in investing. So, Jay, we have to talk about more about the, the style, I guess. And when he started out, or at least when he started to teach me, it was been very close to Buffett by good companies, uh, good management, the reasonable price, which are growing. So... And that's how I started out. But I don't know, it's uh, over the last years, I mean, since I started investing, I never had any success with this kind of strategy. And the the interesting part is I can't tell you why it's this way. Maybe I was overpaying for most of the assets. I don't know. Maybe I was overestimating the the growth, maybe overestimating the quality. I just can't tell you. So I I never made any money with those kind of investments. The, The main skills I had at this time was really about how to do valuation work. So I knew I understood accounting, I understood valuation, I understood business models. So the point where I started to actually getting returns on my investments was when I started to deviate from this strategy. So instead of buying uh, good quality businesses at a reasonable price, I probably, I guess I overpaid for all of them. I started, the first returns came when I started buying okay businesses that have been trading at double digit free cash flow multiples, but sustainable free cash flow multiples. I did both and in parallel. So I did this quality stuff. I did some of those, I would call it multiple arbitrage opportunities where not considered holding the companies for a long period of time, but more like one, two years. And I've seen that the only uh, investments that actually performed 
have been those that I bought a double digit free cash flow yields. So uh, over time, I started to become interested more in small and micro caps. So I started researching, okay, well, what's so special about small and micro caps? Is there any difference compared to, to what you see in the large cap space? Should you maybe focus on small and micro caps? And I found a lot of interesting investors in that area. So I started more and more copying those, understanding how they do, do the due diligence, how they generate their ideas. And over time, I just figured out that it's actually at the end, it's investing is all about price. I mean, no matter what you do, it's all about price. You can do quality investing. You can, I mean, you could go deep value, buying like net nets. It's really about the only thing that matters in investing. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to make money is usually that you shouldn't overpay. You should have a good, decent margin of safety if you really want to make money. And that's what I focus today on. I try to buy not the best businesses, but I would say solid, good businesses, more like stable stable earnings, where I believe that's just way too cheap, considered where it should be trading. And yeah, I have a mix, still a mix of, I would say, opportunities where I believe a multiple arbitrage is the only thing how I can make money. We're just waiting for a re-rate. I have still some opportunities where it's I consider the company is a good opportunity to grow over the next few years and become a compounder. Yeah, but getting back to my roots, I think what I do today compared to what I did in the beginning is come, are two different pair of shoes. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform, our life gets in the way. This is where Hims can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Like a lot of great investors, you've evolved. 
you know, you started out one way and you found another way that works better for you. I think that's totally normal. I think the idea that you're going to start one way and continue that way as you learn more, I think is probably maybe a bit of a broken idea. What are your thoughts? I'm fully with you. I guess over time, especially if you start out, you have no idea what you're doing. You buy all of this kind of stuff. I don't know what your experience has been, but when I started out, I was just buying this company, trading its single digit PEs below tangible book value and then so just getting going into all this, just KPIs, you know, like uh, all these metrics and the result was I wasn't doing any money because I had no idea what I was actually doing. So it's for time, you just try to understand better what, what actually drives returns. And considering my development, I, I had some moments where I have broken the ceiling. So I didn't know what to do, but what can I change to improve my returns? And then you just have this one small, small idea that changed everything in your whole concept. Then you start to better understand the stock markets. And I think that's usually the hardest part when you think about investing. I got a lot of friends over time that I met over time who have been investing in the stocks and they did the same for years and they just didn't know what to change to improve. That's usually, I think, the hardest part when you think about it. And getting back to you, well, so you have to evolve. But it's usually the hardest part is really figuring out how to evolve, what to read, uh, which advice to follow. And there's just too much information out there, which is, I think, especially if you're a beginner or you just don't know where to go because everyone sounds smart on the internet. Every book sounds smart. If you have absolutely no idea what it is about to make money in a market, that's at least my point. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because you had this great tweet not too long ago, kind of about your learning process and how you would start now compared to, you know, if you had to start over from zero. So I guess maybe could we expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Do you want to start me from zero and explain how I would do it today? Yep. So what I will explain now is more like from my experience. That's my opinion. I believe some people have a different opinion on that. The, the main issue I see from most investors is really they don't know how to become better because of this large amount of information. The number one thing is really not to overpay for assets. So you have to understand valuation. You have to understand what you're paying for those businesses. And for example, what the upside is, what the downside is, all of this kind of uh, information. So if I would have to start over again today, first of all, I would focus on lots on following some investors that publish uh, valuations online. Uh, I mean, with the write-ups, there's Value Investors Club, uh, where you can see a lot of emphasis on the valuation. It's never too complicated, in my opinion, but you have to get the valuation right. If you are not able to assess what a business is worth, it will be very hard for you to make money in the market. So most should be really about understanding accounting. The next thing is, if you really want to improve, uh, there are some very, very good books and write-ups and, and whatever. I think the Joy Greenblatt class notes is probably the best thing I've ever read. Then there is the Jeff Gannon compilation, where I think you learn a little bit more about, I learned ton, a ton about uh, second-level thinking, Cost expense, a lot of basics. People just don't understand why it's this way. And, and he really explains it. Those are my absolutely favorite resources out there. And I thought you have to study them. You have to understand there, there's marginal safety by Seth Klarman, which is an excellent book. Then there is can be a stock market genius by Joy Greenblatt, which is actually hard to understand, especially if you're starting out. So I think the hardest part is really, I don't know which book is good for beginners. Because if you want to do make it do to become professional, it gets very fast, very complicated. The next part is if I would start over again, I would always recommend start with small caps. You can even go even smaller. And after you get the knowledge how to model, how to estimate and price to estimate earnings per shares for the future, I would usually do modeling for, I would say, look, don't go for concentration, buy 15 to 20 small caps that you consider as promising, try to forecast the next 12 months, try to forecast revenue, try to forecast the margins, try to forecast the free cash flow, try to forecast working capital, whatever is necessary. And then after 12 months, you just get back. I mean, every quarter, you just update your numbers. You would try to understand uh, why is it deviating from your assumptions, try to be more conservative. And over time, you learn a lot about businesses. So 
why is the business maybe growing faster, slower? Why are margins improving, declining? Why are your cost structures changing? Why do you suddenly have more uh, sales and marketing costs while revenue doesn't grow? And that's a very good way to learn. And besides that, I think what makes it very interesting if you have a bunch of small caps is a lot of bad things happen, but a lot of good things as well. So you just learn from those uh, very unique moments. I don't know, maybe maybe you change in management, uh, you lose big contract for, I mean, you lose your biggest customer, which what's the impact? And that's usually how I would do it. I would f not focus on, on making money in the first few years, but more about gaining as much experience Uh, when it comes to forecasting. And I think that's one of the most important things. Yeah, that's how I would usually would, would start out. I probably forgot a lot to add. It's always not that easy to be out of my head. <laughs> you mentioned um, free cash flow yield and double-digit free cash flow yield. So for somebody who doesn't know what that means, can you break that down a little bit and maybe give an example of a company that you bought with a high free cash flow yield that ended up having a good return for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, I guess your audience understands what earnings yield is. Or I mean, we can I mean, review it. Yeah, we can I, review I, it. Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, let, let me review it real quick. So when we think about an, an earnings yield, I have to explain it because we need it for the free cash flow yield. It's usually the invert of a price to earnings multiple. So if you pay for a company 10 times earnings and you would receive 100% of the earnings as a dividend to your bank account, you would receive 10%, a 10% return, which would be one divided by 10. So if you pay 20 times earnings, the free cash flow, uh, that earnings yield would be 5% because you divide one by 20. So that's the earnings yield. The free cash flow yield. So for me, I usually, it's, you can exchange them however you want. For me, a free cash flow yield would be just a normalized, uh, normalized earnings. We normalize it by one off events, um, which is a little bit more complicated story. You can make a whole episode of that. But so yeah, I would say it's more about an earnings yield where we talk about double digit earnings yield. A few companies I had that have been trading at double digit earnings yields have been one of the best finds I had was uh, API Group, the ticker is APG. I already sold it out to the company. Back then it was in 2020. They just recently had been, uh, so it was a spec and then the sponsor bought this company, API Group, it is spec. And the result was just that they didn't pay much for the company. They put a lot of leverage onto that. So the business was, uh, if you normalized the earnings, you, you see that the company is trading at uh, nine times earnings. So if you go for the invert, you would get a return of, uh, you would get an, an earnings yield of around 11%. So what it means is um, if the business is not reinvesting any of the cash flows or the earnings and you will receive the dividend, or you will have an 11% return on your investment annually. So this would usually attract other buyers, other, other shareholders who are interested in the stock who would see the, the dividend yield. So eventually, the company will trade at a much higher multiple, much higher price to earnings multiple. So my consideration in this case was, for example, okay, we have a very good business, trades in a, at a double-digit free cash flow yield or earnings yield, and it shouldn't trade there. It should be definitely be much higher. So I, uh, my assumption was that I can definitely flip it at a higher multiple at a higher share price. I think I bought my first shares at around $12 a share. And I, uh, I think I sold them out at around $19 a share in less than seven months, as far as I remember. Maybe in between 12, I, I don't remember, to be fair. But yeah, that was something I did. I had a lot of opportunities I had many in the past. Do you have a long-term mindset? Searching for safe compounders? So am I. And I'm investing my entire life savings with the picks from valuespotlight.com. Yeah, that's a good one. How did you differentiate between this is a cheap stock because it's a bad company versus this is a cheap stock and it's actually the business is still going to perform pretty well to give me that higher return? Like, how did you know that the valuation was going to revert to a higher multiple? Okay, uh, that, that's a fair question. So we should think about more about value traps, I guess. So you want to avoid value traps because what you're saying is, how can I make be sure that the company will re-rate to a higher multiple? And the main argument for re-rate is always capital allocation. So what it means is if you have a decent business, 
And I mean, you don't have to do much. So if you have a stable business that's growing like two, three, four percent organically, and it's just distributing all the cash flows back to the shareholders, if I would be happy about an 11% dividend yield, just receiving annually, not doing anything. And so I won't sell my shares. I will buy some shares. So what happens next is more people see this dividend yield. More people start buying shares. So the shareholder base becomes very stable. So there are not many sellers. Over time, what happens next is that uh, more and more people see this opportunity and they say, look, in the past was trading, uh, you received an 11% dividend yield. I'm happy if I receive like 9%, 8%, 7%. So they start to bid up the price and you find some sellers who have opportunity costs and find some other opportunities to invest into. So if you think about the re-rates getting from nine times earnings to, let's say, 18 times earnings or something, it's always about capital allocation. You have to reward the shareholders. You have to give them a reason why they want to own this stock. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why it's so that's the point about value traps as well. So most of the time, if you see a value trap, it's the reason why it's trading at a discount. It's usually because of bad capital allocation. Yeah, and that's how I make sure that the real rate will come up. To be fair, I don't know what well will be heading. You can make some multiple analysis of peers and come to the conclusion it should trade much higher. But in general, if the capital is allocated in a good manner, there should a re-rate happen. So I guess... Can we talk about value traps? This is something that's kind of near and dear to Andrew's heart too. So what are, to you, what are value traps and how do you identify them? So, yeah, I think the first point is, so what's a value trap? I got a friend who once said, look, if you end up in a value trap, you got a valuation wrong. That describes it perfectly. So if you know how to value a company, you know how not to get into a value trap. Usually a value trap is by, uh, shows the following characteristics. It could be something trading in a low book value. It could be something trading at a low price to earnings multiple. I don't know. It could be something trading at a high dividend yield. So all this kind of, uh, I would say, metrics that show you that usually a company is cheap. And uh, and in most cases, if you would just invest on those kind of multiples, you will ending up buying a lot of value traps. One way to avoid that, and that's what I mentioned just before, is really to understand what happens to the cash flow of the business, what happens to the earnings of a business. You can buy whatever you want. You can buy every any company, and it can be the, the, the worst business on earth if it's cheap enough. And the company and the, the management considers distributing the cash to the shareholders. So I think this is really the main part. What happens to the cash? If you really want to avoid value traps, you have to understand what happens to the cash. But getting one step back, um, we're talking for beginners. If you think about a beginner who would just look at for the first time on a company, some issues I see, very common mistakes, are first of all overestimating the future growth rate. I read a lot of quarterly reports and you see this quarter earnings growing by 50%. And as, as a beginner, you start to be super excited. You're like, wow, this business is growing super fast. Uh, and then it's probably super cheap on, on a forward multiple. But sometimes you have one-off events. So you try to understand what's happening in this case. Why is it growing by 50%? One example to, to give you, and, uh, as I'm coming from software, would be a software business usually has some licenses. So for example, you earn every year like 500K in revenue through licenses. And suddenly you have a big order, you, you win a very large customer and you book a 2 million uh, license revenue, which is, by the way, 100% gross margin. So it goes through to the EBIT and you end up with a profit. If everything stays the same, you have a profit, which is 1.5 million, much higher than before. But some some order like that won't be uh, come in in the future. That might be one of the issues. The second thing is, if you take a look just on the price to earnings multiple, you have some one-off events. Something could be, uh, especially on the cost side, that you have a legal, maybe you want a legal fight against some another company. You book some one-off uh, other operating income, which you have to adjust usually to find, figure out what is the normalized profit of the company. You do the same for growth rates. If you buy a cyclical business, you might see this. It's trading at a low price to earnings multiple, but buying at a peak. So it's more to better to assume that maybe we will see a downturn in the next three years. 
So there are a lot of mistakes that people do. And the, the next thing is when we think about value traps is, I mentioned it before, it's really about capital allocation. So we have to, we need a catalyst. So we need a catalyst that something will re-rate. We need a catalyst that something will actually happen. If you buy a company trading below book, for example, we need someone who will realize that value for you. So if it trades half a book, it would in theory mean that you're paying 50 cents for the dollar. But the only way that you receive this dollar is by someone, for example, liquidating the business. If you don't have a management which is not rational, it won't ever liquidate this business. So there's absolutely zero reason to assume that you will get this money. The second thing is, if you think about the sum of the parts valuation, I've seen it many times. I did my own in the past. And I never made money with those. And the point is exactly the same. If you see a company trading at a discount of some of the parts valuation, you have to ask yourself, would the management realize the value of the sum of the parts? Maybe through spin-offs, maybe selling part of the business units to, I don't know, strategic acquirers. So, you need all to make you need always a good management i and that's the reason why i believe buffett is so into management so why management is so important to him because all these rational decisions are required to actually realize the shareholder value the next part comes after selling these businesses so okay you realized you you liquidated this business you you paid 50 cent for the dollar and now the you got a shell you got a company which is just a shell of money the next question is will you really receive the capital will you receive the money then the next question is or will it be burned in another bad acquisition so those are all the assumptions you have to make to consider value traps, which is why you always have to think about the catalyst. I think there's a quote, I don't know who said it, but usually price itself can be a catalyst as well, which uh, I agree on. And it's, it becomes a little bit more complicated. You can buy something very, very, very cheap. I don't know. I have no example to be fair of anything super cheap. But the, the, usually the point is if something is too cheap, at some point there will be an event that will realize the value of the business. That could be, for example, if you know that uh, there is a lot of takeovers happening at, at uh, double the price where the business is currently trading, maybe let's say four times the price where it's currently trading. And you have a, you could speculate that over the next maybe 10 years, someone will come along and, and buy the business. If the management, by the way, getting back to, to the management, if the management is not blocking a deal, if the majority shareholder is willing to execute on that opportunity when someone approaches them and says, okay, look, I'm willing to sell the company. So that's something that's not happening every time. You end up again in a value trap if you don't have a management or owner who is really willing to give you this opportunity. Another issue I usually see with value traps is, or I mean, investors who are evaluating businesses, if they use EV EBITDA or EV EBIT for, for valuation. And the, the problem lies in the price value. The reason is if you have a very cash rich business, uh, maybe they sold the business unit, maybe they just accumulating a lot of cash over the years, just not paying it out to the shareholders. The main issue with that is you don't know if you will ever receive that cash on the balance sheet. So you might pay on, on an EV EBIT that a business might see very cheap. But if you remove the cash from the enterprise value, you get to much higher multiples, in which case it wouldn't look any more cheap. So one of the issues, what I want to say is, if you think about value traps and you talk about enterprise value, you have to think about what happens to the cash. So will it be distributed to the shareholders? Will it be used for reinvestments, acquisitions? Maybe the company has a lot of debt, so which could be, for example, a very low interest of debt, which would actually then mean that if you use it for repaying that, that, that that's a very bad way to use shareholder uh, to use the cash and create. I mean, it's not creating much shareholder value, and that's usually the problem with, with the cash side. At the same time, if you think about a highly indebted business, um, you could do the same logic applying the same logic on earnings you see a company trading in a very low earnings uh, multiple uh, but you ask yourself the questions what happens to the cash actually so what happens to the earnings and you go for the cash flow and you see okay the company is repaying every year this debt so you won't see any of the that cash that is generated 
during that or during the next years because everything is used for repaying the debt. So your return wouldn't be the invert of I don't know. You pay ten times earnings, it wouldn't be like a ten percent dividend yield, but your return would be actually what you would save in interest on that debt. So that would be your real return on that, and uh, I mean your return on the on, on buying this company. So that's usually what you have to assess. On the other side, if you have a company that's highly indebted, but you know the management is executing very well and it's very good capital allocators, what they will do, they will say, okay, look, we will not pay any, we will not, not repay any debts. We will distribute it to shareholders. We will buy our own shares if that makes sense. And this will have a huge impact on, on your returns as well. So in this case, you could realize the return you assume. Yeah, that's probably much more, and I, but I think that's more or less why I wanted to add to this topic. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So you're saying that if management's taking our cash and burning it in a fire, there's a chance that the cash that's in the business might not make it to us because management is taking it and burning it in a fire. It doesn't have to be always burning. It just has to keep it in the business. So you don't know. Right. Maybe you have an owner who is just uh, uses, I mean, for the parks that cash for tax reasons in public company. You won't never, I mean, at some point you might realize that cash, but I just don't know when this will happen. Maybe in 20 years after the founder dies, I don't know, maybe the children take over. Maybe he wants to sell the company. So there are a lot of liquidity events, but you just don't know when they will happen. That's the issue with, uh, with cash on the balance sheet. So you have to make the right assumptions regarding the cash, regarding the use of capital, how do they treat that? All those is very important to assess if that's a value trap or it isn't. And uh, that's what I just think is very important. So you need to assess the management. Is it working in your favor? Is the owner working in your favor? Especially if you, I mean, think about it from a private business lens. If someone is giving you, I don't know, you buy a company or you buy a private company, 10% of it, you're a minority shareholder. You have absolutely zero say. So the majority decides what happens to the business. So you might just be stick holding 10% of a company, but you will, won't ever ret- get any returns on that. So if no one is helping you to, to realize that. That's good. It's a very good point because I think when you talk about value traps, sometimes the obvious ones are easy to spot company has too much debt or company is not growing anymore. Those are sometimes more obvious value traps. But you're talking about companies that have balance sheets that look awesome, but because to your point, they're not actually using that capital to help grow the business. It's almost trapped in there. And when you mentioned companies doing that, I had a couple 
smaller cap companies that I used to own that I ended up selling for that reason that sprang in my mind. Do you see that capital allocation is different with some of the smaller cap names than it is a large cap like Microsoft or Google? I think the main point is probably the ownership. I mean, um, if you think about the Microsoft, I don't know who the majority owners are, but probably some large funds, I guess. And they probably don't even own a majority, but just large shareholders. So there's a very different uh, shareholder base. If you think about small caps, there is usually, I know you have, uh, you have a majority shareholder, you have someone who is the CEO and director of the board as well. And so it's a very different situation compared to, to large caps, to the mega caps, large caps, whatever. But I think you see both situations in, in both universes, the very small ones and the very large ones where, where you probably have a majority owner who's just not willing to distribute. I, I know a few mid caps uh, that I've been researching years, years ago, where it's been, which have been owned by a family and they had a lot of cash on the balance sheet and just didn't spend it on anything. By the way, I just wanted to add one more to the value traps and the cash position on balance sheet. I think it could be interesting. Some people, another way to look at cash in general could be instead of subtracting it from the enterprise value would be of, okay, how could it be used? Let's say you have 1 million in cash on the balance sheet. You know that the director is a good capital allocator. You know that the CEO is a good capital allocator and he might use it cash to acquire a business. Maybe it's not so good. So in, in which case he might overpay for a company. In the first case, he might pay something like five times earnings for another company, which would return like a 20% return on the company, which you could apply like uh, that million, like 20%, which would result in a 200K in additional profit. So you could actually use the price to earnings multiple after this acquisition. So you can make an assumption, okay, if the user's capital at a 20% year invested it at 20%, you will actually get another 200K in profits. And the other way around, if you have a better allocator who is by overpaying for a business, paying like 20 times earnings, you will have a 5% return, which would then result in a 50K uh, additional profit. So that's another way to look at cash. Everything changes the valuation. So either you have it on the enterprise value side, either you use it for the earnings side, either use it for a special dividend when you think that you have a new owner who would definitely de- distribute it to the, to the shareholders. So those are like all the, the thoughts I usually take into account when assessing the balance sheet, uh, the use of cash, use of capital, use of earnings. Yeah, those are good points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. So you work for Constellation Software and Mark Leonard is considered by a lot of people uh, one of the better capital allocators. Did, is that something that you picked up while you were working at that company? Like you observed it on the inside and is that something that kind of helped maybe, you know, formulate some of these ideas about how the companies allocate capital and I guess the importance of it? Yeah, it made at some point sense. If you think about private equities in general, not just Constellation, those guys are just capital allocators. So what are they doing? They buy a business which is owned by, uh, I mean, if you think about software, which is usually owned by an engineer. So this guy has absolutely no idea how to run a software company. He, he never did a price increase. He's overspending on R&D. So a private equity comes into business and they just restructure the company. They reallocate all the capital within the company. And um, that's where usually I formed the idea, okay, what you're looking for when you, for example, evaluate a company, if what you're looking in a manager is really someone who understands capital allocation, who thinks about capital allocation from a revenue side, from a margin side, from a cost structure side. I just had recently a discussion with one of microcap CEOs who was, for example, reallocating his employees from one project to another, was closing down one project because the other one had higher margins. So that's the skill set I want to see in a CEO, someone who analyzes all the opportunities he has available to him. And that's usually what CSI did. That's what every private equity is doing. What Nothing else than, okay, what's the best way to use this cash? If you develop a new product, is there a need for this product? What's the market for this product? Are, I mean, how many customers do we have? If you sell it to them, how much? what will be the return? So it's definitely part of what I picked up during Constellation and how important actually capital allocation is. Yeah, how this business model in general works. Yeah, that's awesome. I just It's kind of ironic that we're talking about this kind of subject because I literally just finished The Outsiders, uh, the book about the CEOs, and that's the main focus of the book, is capital allocation. And these were eight examples of some of the best allocators in the history of the market. And it's kind of ironic that we're talking about that today. 
I mean, it's a good book. Definitely recommend it to anyone who, who didn't, who hasn't read it. Uh, it gives mm -hmm. a good oversight of, of good capital allocation and, and how to think about, I don't know, buybacks, M&A, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So we've kind of danced around this subject a little bit. Maybe we can kind of talk about it a little bit more now. To, what is valuation to you and how do you kind of try to approach it? That's a good question. I think I would pair it with a business quality thing because uh, valuation comes along with business quality. Very important. So valuation is usually for me, I try to understand. So how much are, am I paying for today's earnings? Uh, I mean, sort of, well, how many, what's the multiple I'm paying for today's business? So that's usually what I try to figure out first. And then I try to figure out second, what happens to those earnings? Those are usually two questions I ask myself. And if I can uh, confidently estimate both, I mean, make a good assumption on both, and I think it's still a good idea, I will usually invest. So to estimate the earnings, I start thinking about the business in general. So it starts with the top line. So when we think about revenues, uh, the, the first question that always comes to my head is, are the revenues recurring? So I so are they recurring? Do we have some some recurring business model? For example, uh, if you think about think about SaaS, I mean it's subscription based. Uh, your your customers pay you annually, so that's usually the very first thought I have. Because if the revenues are recurring, it makes it much easier to estimate the earnings power. I mean, or not the earnings power, but the sustainability of the earnings because the revenues will come in every year. So that's usually where I start. Uh, so I try to understand the different revenue streams that a business has. If you think about a regular uh, software company, we're not talking about SaaS, but something. How do I explain it? So, uh, like, I mean, I don't know. If, if you work in a corporate, you know SAP, which in, in the past has been selling uh, licenses. And to those licenses, you receive a maintenance contract and you need some professional services to implement it. So I would, in this case, if I never have researched a software company, I would try to understand all those free uh, revenue streams. So which of them are recurring? Why are they recurring? And so which would consider a one-off? And the other one would be, so what's the margin of all those revenue streams? For example, if you sell more licenses, as I mentioned, they have a 100% gross margin. You can estimate as the, that the gross margin will, will improve over time if you sell more. And it will decline if you sell less. And you make all these conclusions and the same for professional services. So you start to, to think about the business in general and how everything correlates. So if you think about, you start with the margins. So what's included in the cost of goods sold? How does it change if you have more revenues? Is it scaling? Isn't it scaling? Then you get down to, to the operational cost structure where you start about similar thought patterns. So for example, okay, if you, you have sales and marketing, what's inside sales of marketing? So if your revenue, if your revenue top line increases, should you set some marketing increase as well, as well or you do it the other way around? Um, if I spend more time, more money on sales and marketing, what will happen to my, to my top line growth? How is it maybe correlating to my sales? If you think about, I don't know, medic, med tech companies, which have like usually some, some razor blade model where you sell the machine and then you sell these blades now and then. So usually you would see a correlation between hiring more salespeople and selling more machines. And more machines will then lead to selling more razor blades. And that's usually do start to, to make the correlations. If you get back to, to software and you think about the research and development, uh, you hire more R&D people which develop new products, which could then be results in more sales. So you start thinking about, okay, if I hire more R&D people, how will the top line change? So, and, and that's usually all the fair thoughts I do. Uh, you have the same for general GNA, where you start thinking about, okay, if the company is growing, what happens to GNA? Do we need more accountants? The same amount of accountants, is it scaling or isn't it? So that's usually the way I approach it. And this way, I get an understanding of the company. It doesn't have to be super in-depth. I, I, I think most people that I see are spending too much time on other factors, I believe. That's at least my opinion. Too much time on the market, too much time on the competitors. But they usually don't understand the, the business itself. 
from a perspective of the financials. And you can even expand it even further. If you think about revenues, you have to understand how it's uh, wired to the balance sheet, uh, how about the receivables, for example. So it gets very, I mean, you can go very, very deep in, in this discussion. So getting back to the quality of a business, uh, good quality business, as I mentioned, you, you don't want to make it too complicated. So to keep it as, as easy as possible, first of all, is look for businesses that have recurring revenues. The larger the share of recurring revenues, the better. So recurring revenues could be, as I mentioned, uh, some subscription model, could be a consumer behavior, someone buying the same Nutella glass every two weeks, for example. Uh, it could be like, as I mentioned, uh, the razor blade model. I don't know, it's some maintenance, for example. If, if you're producing, if you're an engineering company, you're producing machines, so they usually need some maintenance as well. You're selling spare parts. Usually, that's what you look for. You look for companies that have a uh, recurring business uh, just from, from that. Um, the second thing is if you really want, and I think that that's an important part, Buffett was always preaching to buy good businesses. And the reason why he's doing that is, in my opinion, I never talked about it, so, but it's just my interpretation why he's doing that. It's uh, because the good business has stable margins. So if you have stable margins and stable revenue streams, this makes it very unlikely that you will in the future, I don't know, you will lose market share, your revenue will decline, and uh, you will face more competition who is putting a lot of uh, price competition against you, selling for a lower price, so your margins deteriorate. That's the main reason why I believe why Buffett is putting so much emphasis on burn on quality is because it makes valuation much easier. Your margin of safety is much higher because you exactly know margins will stay the same, revenues will stay the same. So the, at the end, your earnings power will be much easier to estimate or the earnings at the end. Another point of a good quality business, if you really want to make it easy, is the amount of capital expenditures that you need, the, how asset heavy is the business. Most of the companies I buy usually have just desks and chairs. So there's just not much of uh, depreciation and there's just not much of, of investment necessary. I mean, there's, that is pro and cons. I think that the pro is usually don't need much to grow. The business usually can uh, distribute the most of the earnings back to the shareholders. At the other side, those are usually businesses with very low barriers to entry, which gets me back to Buffett, who is talking about franchise powers, so which is the reason why he's looking for franchises like C's Candies, if you think about it, because it's capital light and has barriers to entry because of the brand. So that's usually how I think about a good business in general. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly what I wanted to add to this topic. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could dive down so many different rabbit holes there, but obviously we want to respect everybody's time. So Paul, thanks for joining us today. You have a Twitter account that has a lot of drops of knowledge like Dave was saying. So can you give us that Twitter handle and maybe spell it out for English listeners? Yes, yeah, sure. It's investment ID and it's investment and I-D-E-E-N. Uh, if, if you have any questions or something, whoever listens, uh, feel free to reach out. Happy to give an answer or help you out wherever I can. Yeah, it's awesome. The, Paul, this was fantastic. You you weighed a lot of stuff out here and we definitely, there's a lot of different rabbit holes we could definitely go down. We appreciate your time and coming to talk to us. And again, anybody that is interested in the subjects we were talking about, Paul's DMs are open and he is very, very good at responding and he has a lot of great wisdom and a lot of great experience, as you can obviously tell after listening to the show, that he knows what he's talking about and he's a good resource to help you learn more. And that's one of the goals here is to try to help everybody get better. So, Paul, thank you again for coming and joining us today. We really appreciate it. And with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. Everybody go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.